Happy Monday, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is... Brianne Fallon. How are you, Dave? I'm doing great. It's the second episode of our 10th season. We are delighted, delighted to be here today back at the microphone after our summer hiatus and getting things rolling this season real quick. We're delighted with the response already to my interview with Natalie Avalos that continues Mallory Nye's discussion about decolonizing religious studies. And today, I understand that you have provided us quite a look at one of the founders of the RSP. So tell us what's on the docket today. Well, continuing with our monthly theme, our monthly topic of journeys, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with the Religious Studies Project co-founder, Chris Cotter, and we had a chat about his new book, The Critical Study of Non-Religion, and we came out with this really amazing episode called Developing a Critical Study of Non-Religion. So let's take it away. Hi, everyone. As you just heard, it is indeed me, Bree Fallon, and I am joined today by RSP co-founder and co-editor-in-chief, Chris Cotter, very familiar to all of you, I am very sure. How are we, Chris? We are okay. I'm sitting in my windowless home office box at the moment as we uh, hopefully are nearing the end of, of COVID full-on lockdown shenanigans in Edinburgh. Um, we've got our fingers crossed there um, and just uh, keeping on trucking. Well, in speaking of keeping on trucking, today we're going to chat about your new book, which I just had the joy of reading a bit of an early copy, and I found it very intriguing. Your new book is called The Critical Study of Non-Religion, Discourse, Identification and Locality, and it's being published by Bloomsbury. And the book fits quite nicely into our monthly theme for August, which is journeys, because there are, there are many ways that your book covers this theme. But I thought we would start with perhaps the start of the book because that makes logical sense. Oh, because so. you sort of root. Well, I guess so. Um, you you the book is sort of rooted in the concept of the academy's journey in studying non-religion thus far, and you point out a lot of missteps in that journey. So I'm just wondering if you can give us a sense of the study of non-religion thus far and sort of major missteps up to this point. Mm. Well, what I do, as we all do as academics, is somewhat clunkily fit um, the history and approaches into ideal types. And then I immediately say that ideal types are bad things. But um, I mean, historically, and at the beginning of the book, um, I am drawing a lot more on a broader literature review before getting into my own um, empirical material, but I hope synthesizing it in a new and exciting and up-to-date way. Um, for a long time, um, the study of non-religion or the non-religious or irreligion or the secular or whatever of the multitude of terms we want to use uh, was dominated by what I call a subtractionist approach. So it was seeing... Um, the non-religious, I'll just keep using that term, we could get into critiquing that, um, as an uninteresting residuum left over when religion is removed from the picture. 
Um, so if we're looking at people who might employ social surveys or whatever, um, a nun box might be included in there in an identification exercise. And then that population would probably not be of interest to the study. Um, so, you know, it would be included there to just sort of siphon off people who, who weren't of interest. And um, there's, uh, you know, that, that approach dominated for many decades on uh, from from both sides of the uh, ideological spectrum i suppose um people who might be invested in the category of religion um obviously didn't see people who were identifying as non-religious as being of interest but also people who were perhaps major proponents of the secularization thesis would have seen it as a subtraction story, as there being something there, which was religion, which was diminishing to some sort of neutral um, baseline normal state. Um, and um, Lois Lee and Stephen Bullivant, um, who are sort of, well, they, they or the co-founders of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network, of which I'm now part, um, they trace this back to the the early pioneers of the social sciences, like you know Marx, Comte, Durkheim, and so on, who, uh, in their words, were you know because they were not religious themselves or saw themselves as having transcended this in some way, didn't see that state of being as being worthy of comment. Now, um, although there has been demonstrable interest in the study of non-religious from a more substantive perspective, say going back to the the nineteen sixties, with uh, there there was a a big conference that happened at the the, the Vatican, and um, with a lot of that days um, major sociologists attending. And then in the early 70s, we had Colin Campbell's Toward a Sociology of Irreligion, which sort of set a research agenda. It wasn't really until um, the 21st century that people started taking a, a real substantive look at going, well, maybe people who are identifying as non-religious, maybe there's something interesting going on there. Maybe it's more of a question of what do they have? What beliefs, values, practices, and all, all that sort of thing do they have rather than just seeing them as this sort of empty residuum? And from the start of the 21st century, we then, with the rise of new atheism and a whole bunch of other things, contextual factors, scholars start to turn their attention towards the non religious substantively. So asking, things like what does it mean to be non-religious uh, and taking that none category of social surveys which seems to be growing and growing and starting to think well who are these people um and of course that's an excellent first step um there's clearly a lot of people who aren't seeing religion that social construct is being relevant to their lives so let's see what's going on but um, within that, um, a lot of critical problems emerge. I mean, the first one would be a sort of um, world religions paradigm expansion um, issue um, whereby this nun category was sort of, and we see it all the time in like major social surveys and news stories, the, the nuns are being raised to the status of a 
of like well the world's fourth largest religious group as some of the stats would suggest and problems with that are that first of all it assumes that there is something unifying i mean we present people with a survey and they say do the any of these categories apply to you or none of them and if you take none that doesn't say that there's anything unifying that group at all it just says that you rejected all the other categories in the survey so there's a sort of scholarly implication in the construction of a social group um, that otherwise might not exist had the question not been asked in the first place. But there's also then, um, like as David Robertson and I argued in Afterworld Religions, there's the, the idea that adding an extra seat at the table to the world religions paradigm going, well, well, here we've got this model with Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, maybe Sikhs, who knows? And then we'll, we'll add an extra table for these nuns. And, and then now we're, we're sort of properly um, covering all our bases and everyone's being represented. Um, well, what that does is it just shores up all the critical problems with the world religions paradigm, which I'm not going to get into just now. Um, you can check out some other RSP podcasts on that if you wish. Um, nice plug. <laughs> um, yeah, it was David's interview with James Cox. Um, that, that's your key one there. Um, so it's got all of those sort of issues. Um, then, obviously, it was an under-theorized field as well. So when you start to hear scholars substantively studying this disparate um, category, whether it's a group or not, people start coming up with their own idiosyncratic terminology I've certainly done that in the past, and it's understandable. You have a new group of data. You want to typologize. You want to um, use ideal types. So the field very quickly then became populated with lots and lots and lots of disparate studies, um, each using their own idiosyncratic terminology for usually quite small groups of participants. Um, and then starting to speak ideal typically about those individuals um, and with all the problems that come with ideal types you know they're, they're never meant to equate to reality or give us a broader you know give us a, a generalized sense of, of what might be going on um, but then thirdly of course um, from a critical religion perspective and again check out our interviews with tim fitzgerald on this um the very notion of non-religion, I mean, in that phrasing, it is semantically parasitic on that category of religion. So by, although, as I would argue, you can do good critical work to destabilize the the mystification of the category of religion and, and the reification of it as something so generous, by putting an added non in front of it, um, there is a sense of sort of kicking the can down the road and you can actually end up just further reifying the category by going, well, there is this sui generis religion um, and we're going to study the all the stuff that's non-that, but you're just sort of adding a, an extra term onto the start of an already mystifying category. Um, and obviously Tim Fitzgerald takes great issue with that. Um, I would say, and as I hope we do in the book, that by adding that extra non onto the front and by showing how um, 
all like the movements um, between religious stances and non-religious stances, the, the, the discursive machinations that are going on, uh, showing how it's all fluid removes some of the mystifying power of the religion category by demonstrating that that it is a discursive construct that's utilized um, tactically by people as they navigate their place in the contemporary modern world where that category of religion has had um, a lot of power invested in it uh, throughout modern history. Now, we've really sort of just run over the, forgive me for saying, we the first part of the book almost sort of comes across as almost like a textbook, I guess, mm. sort of like a textbook on the history of, of non-religion, particularly, um, sorry, the study of non-religion, particularly in the UK. I yeah. think that you generally sort of focus more there. Um but then the book sort of moves away from that and we sort of get really into the chunk of your study. Now, your study is focused in um, the south side of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And before we get into sort of the nitty-gritty of what you found, I'm interested in having gone through all of that literature, how did you frame your methodology in order to place your study um, in that critical realm, as you've said, but also to navigate around the missteps on the journey um, in the study of non-religion thus far. So my question really is, is how did you create your methodology for your study in Southside Edinburgh? Yeah. Um, Well, obviously it took a long time, um, as one does when one is doing a PhD. Um, And the initial project, of course, didn't end up being what ended up happening because um, scholars never talk enough about that. I think I think an excellent project and maybe another RSP podcast might be to get scholars to talk about what their original doctoral proposal was for their research project and how it changed um, into the final uh, product at the end. But um, I mean, I, I've always been interested in in non-elite discourse again part of the one of the issues with the study of non-religion that had been emerging what was uh inordinate amount of attention being paid to these sort of um like the new atheists the um boisterous older white males um so i was always keen to employ um non-elite um discourse in what i was doing um and another key thing that developed from my master's was the desire to try and avoid placing people into these religious or non-religious boxes from the outset and, and using like a, a tick box exercise. And then if people said they were not religious, using that as my way to, to find them and speak to them. Um, so I was always keen to, to avoid um, that sort of immediate um, dismissal of individuals because I'd already developed this notion that uh, these categories are fluid and relational. And when um, social actors are confronted with certain circumstances, they might be more inclined to utilize um, religious or religion-related discourse and other times to position themselves um as not in a religious category or to use other discursive resources altogether. Um, but when I started the project, I wasn't using the word discourse really at all. Um, 
And part of the reason I ended up going down that route, and here's where we end up with journeys, I suppose, <laughs> is um, I was based at Lancaster University working with Kim Knott. And Lancaster, unbeknownst to me, whilst also being the first Department of Religious Studies in the UK um, set up by Ninian Smart, was also uh, and still is a major hub for critical discourse analysis um, with Norman Fairclough, um, Ruth Vodak um, particularly. And I ended up, um, when I was searching around for, for a, a methodology in, in my, my first year, taking a 10-week um course um, with Karen Tusting on discourse analysis, which sort of really grounded me um, in that methodological approach, um, which is social constructivist in nature. And again, we've got an interview with Koki von Stukrad speaking about um, discourse analysis and the study of religion. Please check that out. But social constructivist in nature in sees, um, you know, uh, we, we perceive reality um and but we can only describe it in language so that you know people might accuse it of being overly linguistic but ultimately experiences practices beliefs etc are all articulated in language but rather than taking the language as being inherently meaningful what discourse analysis does is it 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 takes those um speech acts and breaks them down looks for metaphors synecdotes looks at the silences looks for the common sense tropes and things and tries to see um what is being encoded into that so i went for a discursive approach um so i wanted to look at and that, and that helped me actually get around that initial um uh fear of bounding people into religious or non-religious categories because it was like i am studying discourse on the category of religion i can just talk to people about it um consider myself as part of that discourse as part of that conversation and just roll with it um so i went for discourse analysis and this was also a trend that was starting to dominate in um Religious studies at the time, we had a few big articles by Kaku van Stukra, Temu Taira, and others coming out just at the time that I was doing this. Um, at the same time, um, the Culture on the Edge collaborative it emerged, um, sort of with Russell McCutcheon, Craig Martin, Leslie Dora Smith, and others, um, of which I'm now also a part, um, and they were making use of the French uh, social theorist Jean-Francois Bayard and his notion of shifting identity talk to talk of identifications. So again, um, that tied in very well with that discursive uh, approach that I was encountering at Lancaster and again helped my uh, thinking in terms of let's not think about what people's identities are, but rather what are the identificatory moves that they are making in social contexts? And then thirdly, I was working with Kim Knott. Kim Knott um, is perhaps best known for her book on the this called the, the Location of Religion, a Spatial Analysis, although she's done a lot of work in Hinduism and on security threats and other things. Um, but she was quite rooted in an ethnographic approach um, looking at specific localities. And at the time, I was grappling around for, I want to look at discursive data, and I want to prioritize non-elite 
social actors, but how do I justify bounding the data? Like you, you need to have a sort of organizing frame for your research. You can't just go in and say, I'm going to speak to a, a bunch of people who will speak to me. You need to have some sort of way of containing the data and locality emerged as a, as a way to at least guarantee some sense of coherence to the body of discourse that I ended up studying. So I landed on Edinburgh's South Side after thinking about various other um, diverse locations that I can maybe look at, which might have lots of discourse on religion happening. But I'd lived in the South Side of Edinburgh um, for about 14 years by that point. Um, it's a, a small area in, in uh, the city of Edinburgh in Scotland with about 20, 20 to 25,000 inhabitants. On many scales, it would perhaps not be that diverse, but in terms of Scotland and Edinburgh in general, it is it's very diverse in terms of um, ethnicity and, and religion-related background and socioeconomic status and so on, but also um, of the high concentration of individuals who were taking the non-box to the religion question on the 2011 census. So it seemed like a a good fit um, to investigate uh, religion-related discourse. And I'm wittering on, but um, I used the South Side as my my means of soliciting interviews. So I solicited people as Southsiders first, rather than saying, hey, I want to speak to you about uh, religion. Um, although I didn't, um, I didn't lie about that. It was on the poster and on all the things, but you know, the, the big thing was, are you a Southsider? Then I want to speak to you. Um, and I did about, um, 20, 25, um, interviews, um, for that project. My master's project had also been based, um, in, in the same area, which added in another, um, 11 interviews, I think. And then I also got access to an historic data set that the city of Edinburgh council had, um, produced, uh, in the mid nineties for a different project, but which had also focused on religion in part. Um, so I ended up with about 70, 75, um, interviews, um, informing my study, that gave me a historical triangulation point as well. But then also I was embedded in the area for over a decade and continued uh, with participant observation and uh, observations in the linguistic landscape and newspapers and so on. So I ended up with, with quite a body of, of data to examine. Well, now it's time for the big question, which is what did that data tell us? Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in, in nine minutes. <laughs> in nine minutes. Um, well, um, one of the things I, I did was um, I tried to, to group. Um, so I had all this discursive data and, and then you, it was hundreds of thousands of words and then you, you end up um, breaking it down, not just by themes and so on, but I, I produced sort of eight um discursive groupings that you could clearly see sort of discursive strands going throughout the data i'll not go into the the details of what they are but there were sort of four key points that came out for me that are perhaps of most interest here i mean the first 
as the um the power that the category of religion exerted in certain areas of discourse and the power it did not exert in others um and so some of these discursive strands that i encountered were heavily implicated in the historic machinations of religion in in the south side of edinburgh and in the uk um the the predominance of christianity the um the the complete bind between people's notions of morality and being a good christian and so on there were certain areas in which um religion related discourse was heavily implicated and then there were other areas in which you could describe the contours of the discourse without ever making any reference to religion related categories at all um and although this seems a fairly banal point to make the conclusion here was that being non-religious or positioning oneself as religious or not religious matters more in certain contexts than it does in others there are certain points at which that contested category of religion holds a lot more power and that positions need to be taken and the stakes are higher and other areas in which it doesn't seem to matter very much at all um and that's that's an important point because like well obviously surveys that's a point at which a position must be made right and that's the things that we tend to measure but even if you think about the way people get on in, in everyday life they uh people can rub along quite well alongside people of different ideological positions much of the time but there are certain key areas in which suddenly certain identifications come to the fore certain positions have to be taken um so i would just urge a much more nuanced look at um at these contours and at where these points are um and i think a lot of studies will either focus on on these points where things seem to be totally hunky dory or on these points where there's conflict rather than appreciating that these are particular discursive strands and that a broader view of the entire field might indicate that the, the relationship between religion and non-religion is is much more um much more complicated um i think one of point, the areas sorry oh, before sorry i'm just interrupting you i think one of the areas you mentioned in the book as being one where religion was kind of referred to was actually in relationships mm. so between the respondent and the people in their household for a year for example do you have a sort of an example you can give us of a respondent really bringing religion to the fore in that regard well one of the first things i would say is that yeah when religion was spoken of in concrete rather than abstract terms that tended to be through relationships you know people would quite happily talk about um sort of grand ideas and religion in abstract ways but when they they had lived experience of it of a perspective that wasn't theirs it invariably was through some sort of um close personal relationship a quote they always jump to uh, is a a french 
student that I called uh, Severine, who who said that you know she was definitely, definitely an atheist, um, but that her her grandmother was quite an old lady, and and she wouldn't want to cause her any upset. So I don't think that I'm an atheist for my grandmother. Yeah. Um, and um, that 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 is an example of how people situationally identify and how people will prioritize certain social discourses there on the importance of family on family on respect for elders on preserving the peace on all sorts of things over their commitments in other areas such as in relation to whether they think there's a deity or not so the second point before I so rudely interrupted you, I'll let you take off with that one. <laughs> it's quite all right. Um, it was just uh, you know focusing right in on that uh, point of Jean-François Bayard about um, identifications rather than identities. Um, again, a, a classic example would be from uh, another student informant who um, had a whole variety of different identities like when part of the process was presenting them with a a whole list of identificatory terms and allowing them to select any ones that they thought were applicable Um, and then we discussed what those terms meant the context in which they might use them and i think you know they had things like humanist agnostic atheist secular but for each one of these they were saying well that seems more to me like well if i was asked to identify on a survey it would be that if you were talking about my belief in a deity, well, it would be that, but also atheist too harsh to use in social interactions. So I'd probably move to agnostic more depending who I was talking to, but humanist would be the one that would describe my sort of worldview in that way. Atheist doesn't seem that relevant a term to me, although it is a term that applies and so on. Um, so again, that doesn't sound like too much of a, a grand statement to make, but identities are, are not these static, static things that, that we fit into and that we move about the world with, but rather um, every act of identification, every moment in which an identity is claimed or even brought to the surface, you know, we're all different things. We're all gendered, classed, we're in certain jobs, we've got racial identities we're we're seen differently because of the the teams we support because of our age um because of our family relationships and so on we we carry all of these identifications with us and many of those are fluid even within themselves but it's the relational social interaction that makes these things uh that come to the surface and be uh and have people positioned in relation to those identity categories. So when it comes to religion and non-religion, again, um, there are certain things out there in the social world that will push particular individuals into to one one side or another, but things are, are much more fluid. And as we know, even within a religious tradition, plenty of adherents will um, not necessarily wish to identify with their tradition in some circumstances or in others they'll not subscribe to everything that they're supposed to subscribe to this is normal stuff um but it 
by using this uh, approach where I, I tried to set aside that distinction between religion and non-religion and look at what was happening on the ground, I, I think I, I showed some really illuminating things about how, about how the, this fluidity uh, manifests itself and, and the power that these identifications hold. Like it, it, again, drawing back to the previous point, being positioned as religious or non-religious matters more in certain contexts than it does in others. And understanding those points is important. Sort of um, brings to mind some very sort of classical work like Goffman and presentation of self in everyday life and Hmm. um, even Tillich with ultimate concern. And the fact that it's sort of dredging those things up in my mind brings me back to something you said earlier in that there has been sort of a lack of of critical theory to the study of non-religion and it sounds like you're really sort of turning that up in this book and really focusing on that real critical aspect as as the title would tell us. My next question is, do you think that the methodology and the approach you've taken in this book is specific to the study of non-religion or will it be useful elsewhere? Uh, I don't think it's specific to non-religion at all, but the the... The guiding argument I always provide for the book is that, particularly with the study of non-religion, um, there seem to be two broad camps out there. There's the the critical scholars of religion, um, who tend to look askance at what's going on in non-religion studies because they see all those critical problems that I identified earlier: the reification of the category of religion, the construction of social groups, and so on. And they would tend to say studying non-religion substantively is just a further entrenching of that problem and it's all somewhat worthless. I'm generalizing. Um, And then the other side, you've got plenty of scholars who are quite happy to just dive in and find new data and substantiate what's going on and without paying any attention to those very important problems of power and category formation and all the rest that would animate the critical study of religion. And I saw this book as providing a a bridge between the two saying, what happens if we do um, empirical work, ask empirical questions, get out there, speak to quote, real people, find out what's going quote on the ground and so on, but do that um, in a critically engaged manner um, with attention to all those um, key questions that might animate the critical study of religion, you know, who are making claims about what, why, to what effect. Um, and so the fact that I use this for non-religion, um, yes, it, it was useful for me and it provided a useful access point to it, but I'll certainly be carrying this approach into any work that I do in the future, I mean, academic life is precarious beyond belief just at the moment, but I might have another 30, 40 years here and I don't see myself um, necessarily um, staying in the non-religion camp uh, for that entire time exclusively. Um, and the, the approach can absolutely be applied. It's essentially um, getting on with solid, detailed um ethnographic discursive work but with those critical questions firmly in mind uh, and it, that comes from a, a sort of anxiety i suppose i have about the the field of the study of religion where, where where we can see things going in in the one way towards a sort of um 
um, lived religion, everything's all hunky-dory. Let's just keep uh, finding out what wonderful, weird, wacky beliefs people have uh, and, and, and sort of skewing too much along that sort of phenomenological way of thinking that might end up more closer to theology and the other side, the critical religion that, that ends up undercutting its own very existence by saying that the category of religion is a social construct. It's problematic and we need to do away with it. So then where does the study of religion go? Um, I think both can be done at the same time. Um, I think that's probably what I've been doing here um, in this book and, and will hopefully continue to do. We try and, um, blend both approaches in a, in a constructive way that, that shows that you can have good, solid, empirical, interesting, um, vibrant, um, exciting work, but also critically deconstructed at the same time. Just one last question, because we're rapidly running out of time. It sort of links to something you just raised there, which is your own sort of academic journey, your own trajectory. That's actually something you bring up in the book, The Critical Study of Religion. Very early on, you talk about how your experience as a fledgling PhD student really informed this particular study. And I don't imagine that was a particularly easy thing to include in the book, but I was just wondering if you could just shed a bit of light on on that for us um, and the sense of how the academic journey has has been for you in the creation of this book. Yeah. Well, yes, throughout the book, and particularly in the introduction and conclusion, I, I try and focus on a lot of the relationships that I've built up over the years. Um, I think it's important to situate yourself, where you're coming from, where you're speaking from as an academic. And I am very much the product of a lot of fruitful and collegial, um, friendly academic interactions, as I described, you know, that sort of move from to adopting discourse, identification and locality, they're all tied in different scholarly communities, as is my whole approach to the study of religion in that critical but ethnographically engaged approach is very much grounded in in the Edinburgh context that I had working with people like Jim Cox, Steve Sutcliffe, um, and, and even um, your own Carol Cusack, um, who came over to Edinburgh at a particularly formative moment for me. And so I certainly try and highlight the importance of all these very positive um, collaborations and um, people who at various points um, gave me a chance and took me under their wing and, and gave me the time that, that then led to this positive influences on, on my intellectual formation a more negative thing that I you know I worried about including and I didn't really know if it was appropriate or not but I'm, I'm glad that I did was that there was a moment um right at the beginning it was just when I'd um you know got the f- I, I got funding for the PhD and I was delighted and I was you know sharing this uh, around a, a, a few of my my network this happened and and a, and a a senior scholar who'd, who'd been quite supportive um up until that point asked to to see my research proposal and um upon seeing the research proposal um 
decided to to send me a message um, detailing uh, insert point by point all the things that they thought that I had uh, stolen from their work and uh, all the points at which I was you know just plagiarizing them and and using them um, to my own gain and how how disappointed and shocked they were with me and so on now at the time you know, I've I've gone back and I've read the whole exchange and read everything, and, and I'm sure there might you know there might have been some bits which were um, influenced by this individual. Um, that happens, and particularly when you're entering into you know you're applying for something, you know, your academic rigor is not going to be what it is now, and so on. So I'm not saying they they were entirely wrong. Um, but at the same time, it had been through numerous other people reading it over. It was my ideas. Um, and a more collegial reaction to that might have been, this is excellent to see how you're working along the same lines that I've been developing in a new context. Um, I'm really excited to see what you come up with. Really, you know, like, this is going to be great. And instead... Um, the the approach was to sort of stamp on me, and um, you know say you know, you know really as I would say now just absolutely overblow um, any sense of what had been going on, and and that that stuck with me, um, and I would say pushed me um, in a much more positive direction. Had I maybe stuck following in that uh, individuals footsteps uh, I would probably have ended up with a, a much less critically engaged much more um, naively substantively focused um, piece of work than than what came out at the end and I think initially a lot of that came from trying to distance myself like really trying to go and I, there was probably a lot of hurt in there thinking well if you think that that's what I'm, you know, if you think that I'm trying to copy you, I'm going to make very well sure that I am not doing that. Um, so uh, it, it came out of a place of negativity, um, but had, had a real positive impact, I think. And um, I'm sure others have had similar experiences. Yeah, I do have to say, um, reading that in the book, you know, from somebody um, as like from yourself who, you know, as a young scholar, I do respect so greatly to know that other people have been there and, you know, that the academic journey itself is not all sunshines, lollipops and rainbows. I, I really appreciated the candour in the book and the candour that you've just shown to us now. So thank you for that again. And, you know, there's there's lots of things we could continue talking about, but unfortunately we're out of time. So I just wanted to thank you again and let everybody again know the title of the book. It's The Critical Study of Non-Religion by Bloomsbury. Thank you, Chris Cotter. Thanks, Brian. I really am thankful for Chris's candor in that episode about his experience in coming to publish this his latest monograph, The Critical Study of Non-Religion. But I would like to talk with you, Dave, about this kind of concept of, of the category of the nun, the category of non-religion and how that sort of sits in the 
idea of the world religions paradigm, which is really sort of dropped and how we kind of work with these categories moving forward. Yeah. Chris has a moment in the interview where, where he says to you that previously it was a subtractionist approach. If you went out and you asked everybody here, check which one of these boxes you fall into that everybody who didn't fall into one of those boxes was subtracted from the study. And so it was a way of really creating the boundary around things that we think of as uh, endemic to the world religions paradigm. So if you weren't Hindu or you weren't Buddhist or you weren't Christian, you weren't Muslim, uh, you're none, right? And that final box and checking that final box meant um, in, in Chris's opinion that um, we're just reifying the original category by tacking on all of this uh, extra non or secular or irreligious or the not religious and all of those add-ons were just continuing to prop up the kind of mystical properties of religion as a category that is assumed in all of those other identity formations and was then being thrust upon non-religion as uh, this kind of vacuum that was just hoovering up all of this extra junk. Uh, I really enjoyed your interview because I think it, it brought out that point where th the categories in the positive sense about religion also created the categories negative opposites and and sustained the power of the original category religion that was being used kind of weakly among all of them uh it's a real service i think what what you did uh, speaking with chris not only to draw out that bit but also to frame it within the context of the labor the journey that we all go on on scholars to produce this kind of work and so chris talks about what it was like to collect the data. And he talks about some of the, the kind of professional challenges that he faced uh, trying to, to look at this work. And, and uh, I think listeners here at the end here, uh, I probably agree with me that this was a really uh, interesting and, um, and useful episode for us all to think about the way in which the categories that we privilege often have unintended side effects and that those side effects are, are deeply worthy of study for how they affect the discourse and how they arrange things that we um, kind of let go of control of. Uh, is that what you think too, now, Brie, after having spoken with Chris? Yes, definitely. This idea of the non-religious or the, or the atheist being defined by what it's not, you know, it's not a belief in God, it's not this, it's not that. And I thought it was very interesting where Chris talked about the various places he got his data from, one of which was a council study, as opposed to a study that had been about, as you say, this subtraction of people from a study based around religion. And I really think the episode sort of really drew our attention to the multiple avenues down which we can actually travel as academics to get data and really challenge these these categories and challenge these boundaries that have both consciously and unconsciously been placed on us as a discipline. And of course, this is a conversation that we want to continue with all of you. So make sure that you let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Project RS, on Facebook at the Religious Studies Project. And if you really loved the episode and you want to make sure we stay on the air, head to our website, head to the Support Us tab. And, you know, just a few dollars you can donate and help keep us on the air. You know, become a Patreon of the project and make sure that we can continue these really important discussions about our discipline and about religious studies. But let's talk about what's on next week, Dave.
you know, next week, I think we continue a theme that is already evident just in the handful of episodes that we've done. The first episode that I did with Natalie Avalos looked at decolonizing religious studies from an ethnic studies and a Native American and indigenous studies perspective. So it was interdisciplinary. When you spoke with Chris, one of the the things that he points out in his interview is that the study of world religions created this space for non-religions that doesn't really fit neatly into the paradigm of what religious studies is doing. And the roundtable that we have next time that features Michelle Wang, Hannah Gould, Ralph Craig, Yunmi Kim, all moderated by Matthew Hayes, is a roundtable on Buddhist ritual from an interdisciplinary perspective. And so it brings together religious studies folks with art history folks, with Buddhist studies folks uh, from around the world, Australia, Asia, uh, across the U.S., to talk about the ways in which each one of them has their own kind of journey to go on and how each discipline affects our understanding of Buddhist ritual. And we hope that you'll join us for that next time. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.